1: head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, listeners. This may not be the episode you expected to hear when refreshing your podcast app, but this is a conversation we wanted to have. Anti-Semitism and racism are terrible ills to society, and while it'd be nice for football to exist in a space free of such intrusion, that simply isn't the case. If you want to skip this episode, Cast it out of your mind and never come back to it. We understand. These are heavy topics and not usually why you tune into the London is Blue podcast. However, I'd like to walk you through our thinking behind recording this episode and entering into this conversation. You'll give us another minute of your time. I think you might want to continue listening. If you don't and decide to skip ahead to our next match recap, that's okay too. We'll see you then. So why a multi-episode conversation around anti-Semitism and racism? We were approached by Dan Levine, a longtime Chelsea supporter and journalist whose work you've undoubtedly crossed paths with before, prior to the start of the season, asking if we were interested in covering something different than the usual summer transfer gossip and preseason match recaps. Dan went on a club sponsored trip to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the concentration and extermination camp used by the Nazis in World War II In an effort by chelsea to educate supporters about the atrocities that had taken place on these grounds
2: this trip came on the back of several self-inflicted black eyes in which numbers of chelsea supporters engaged in anti-semitic chants targeted at a specific crosstown rival and their supporters we wanted to use this space as a place to talk about the club's history with anti-semitism and racism highlighting several key individuals have worked tirelessly to help affect positive change within a portion of our peers, other Chelsea supporters, who hold these beliefs. We are also not so short of memory to quickly forget the incident in Paris, where four Chelsea supporters were convicted of racist abuse before a Champions League match between the Blues and PSG. We've read fantastic articles from our friend Amity and other Chelsea supporter and journalists who has never shied away from covering the topic of racism within the world of football for Holler Magazine. And we also asked him to join this conversation as well. We will cover
3: these topics in three segments. First, we will discuss the history of anti-Semitism and racism in football as it relates to Chelsea. We know that Chelsea is not the only club experiencing these types of issues, but this is the most informed and educated perspective we can provide we also know that in general, we are talking about a small minority of supporters who hold such views. In this section, we also have interviews with Paul Cannonville, the first black player to play for Chelsea, and Peter Collins, editor of the Chelsea Independent in the 1980s who helped take the fight to extremists. Second, we will discuss Dan Levine's trip to Auschwitz-Birkenau with Chelsea. This is an accompaniment the piece, he posted on our website which you can read in full at londonisbluepodcast.com. And third, we will take a look at the state of the club today in relation to those issues. Chelsea as a whole is working hard along with other clubs and football governing bodies to eradicate intolerance from the game and their supporters. We wanted to discuss the ways in which the club is doing that in addition to the ways all supporters can work to make the game and the Chels we all love more inclusive.
1: Welcome to the first part of our podcast series on the topic of anti-Semitism and racism. And today we're joined by our regular contributors here and hosts in Nick Verlaney and Michael Flynn. Brandon Busby is off for this segment. So, gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing well, man. How are you? Good, good. We're also joined as well by uh, Dan Levine and uh, the wonderful... Amity who uh, have taken some time out of their day to join us to discuss uh, a pretty uh, heavy topic, and uh, we're looking forward to doing that with you gentlemen as well.
4: Fantastic to be here, and thanks ever so much for, for picking up this subject, because it's uh, obviously a very important one.
5: I'm honored to be here, and to echo Dan. It's, this is a very important conversation, and I'm honored to be having it with you guys.
1: So our, our first part, and, and we're going to throw it and get into it pretty quickly here, Dan, and, you know, when we think about the club today, you know, for you know, those who've witnessed a diverse group of players and supporters filling in the benches and seats in Stamford Bridge, in the photos of supporters groups ar- around the world, that, you know, there, there is a diverse identity of Chelsea supporters. And for those who've been indoctrinated into Chelsea in the post-Roman Abramovich era, it's hard maybe for us to picture a time where large amounts of anti-Semitic and racial intolerance existed. And I was hoping that you'd be able to walk us through what you observed growing up as a Chelsea supporter uh, so that the listeners first can understand maybe what that atmosphere looked like prior to, to now and what it looked like for, for you growing up.
4: Yeah, sure. I, I went to my first game in in nineteen eighty four and, and to be honest I, I was protected from from most of seeing this stuff because uh fairly early on my dad decided that um, it wasn't an ideal place to bring a young a young boy really um, but Britain was a different place back then, uh, Chelsea was a different club uh, of course it was without success football was a different game, it was very much a working class game there uh, and games were a different situation, now there are a lot of things people will say that have been lost from those days that are a terrible loss, you know the, there was probably a more a closer bond with players in a lot of ways it, it, fans were almost more a part of the spectacle but there are also other things that have been lost that 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 most of us won't miss at all and uh i'm afraid racism anti-semitism were, were big parts of that uh, britain in the early 80s was was very conflicted as it is now to a certain extent in a big big way in fact uh and um far-right groups were very much on the rise as indeed is the case today um, there was a group then that was that was very popular, uh, more in the seventies, I suppose, uh, called the National Front, which more, morphed into an organisation called the British National Party. And these were parties, political parties at the um, at the at the ballot box, but also you know organisations of generally young working class men who believed in in their own words keeping Britain white. Um, they were all about fascism, all about. Um, Britain for the indigenous people uh, and one of the ways they tried to, to gain popularity was often through football and uh, I think that maybe gives a, a good example of how things were in the very early days when for example Paul Cannaville started playing for Chelsea.
2: I think this is, this is the, the, the best individual to speak on Chelsea's history with racial intolerance as, as Paul was the first black player to play for Chelsea He's also detailed his experiences, Dan, uh, in his book Black and Blue, um, and you sat down with him uh, to, you know, kind of get further perspective, right, on on kind of what he went through and and the types of um, the types of abuses he he had to suffer, unfortunately.
4: Yeah, um, I, I strongly recommend the the book Black and Blue to anybody who's listening. It's is what I'd say is probably the the lone. Uh, one of a very small number of essential reads for the Chelsea fan about the club. Uh, It's his autobiography. It's about a a very, very challenging life and racism is one part of that. Um, But uh, it was a a key part of that. Um, The the National Front, as I just talked about, were were not just a political party. They were almost a a paramilitary organisation on some fronts as well. And uh, their, their, uh, their, their paramilitary arm was a group that called themselves Combat 18, and and this says a lot about where they were coming from. The 18 stood for the first and the eighth letter of the English alphabet, which are A and H, the initials of Adolf Hitler. Um, and they infiltrated, to a large extent, Chelsea Football Club, and they made their feelings often very well known from the terraces. And though they were a minority, um, they shouted very loudly. Uh, and I think uh, Paul's experience is is the best way to to demonstrate how that was felt
1: so we're going to go ahead now and play the full interview that dan conducted with paul cannonville and uh, we look forward to you hearing that and we'll come back and, and discuss that further after you listen to this
4: there aren't many people who can say that they've changed the very face of a football club i'm honored to be with one here this afternoon uh I'm sat so, I'm outside uh, Stanford Stamford Bridge and uh, this is Paul Canaville, So good afternoon, Paul.
6: Good afternoon to you and good afternoon to your readers.
4: First of all, Paul, just like to say a lot of people know that uh, last year you didn't have the best of health, but you're looking in fantastic form at the moment.
6: I'm glad for you to say that. Um, it was um, scary, up and down. Um, something in life that you don't expect um, came out of the blue, just a bowel problem. And it was a whole month I was in hospital and the karma, induced karma for seven days. Yeah, very scary for me, but so glad to get back. It took a little while. but to get back at Chelsea and to get back to the hospitality, yeah, it's
4: grateful. We, a few of us were a little bit worried at some stages, but, but it's fantastic that you're back with us. Now, the programme I'm doing today is all about the history of Chelsea and particularly the history of racial intolerance at Chelsea. And I can't think of anybody, I'm afraid, who can speak more honestly and openly about this than you. Um, you wrote an autobiography uh, ten years ago now, which I have to say, and I've said this for the last decade, is probably the only must-read book about Chelsea I can think of called Black and Blue, and uh, you, it's about your life and about your experiences and how you probably fit more experiences into your life than anyone I can think of. Um, but one of those experiences, of course, was, as a 19-year-old, making your debut for Chelsea. Um, I don't want to press you too hard on this, but what are your, your, your thoughts and your expectations as a teenager making your first appearance for this club?
6: Um. I can never forget that because it was a case that as a young boy of age five, six, it was a dream watching, sorry to say, Leeds United and black and white telly. I wanted to be a professional footballer. So, to um, be given that opportunity and that chance, and I have to say, rest in peace to the, the late John Neal, who gave me that opportunity, and that's to sign for Chelsea. Um, throughout the four months, as I would say, um learning my trade um as a professional i was in reserves and it was kind of I find, i've i got to be honest i find it kind of easy quick quickly but easily um because coming from a non-league game southern league football healing about was very very tough you're learning by a tough way tackles were tackles like them days but yeah coming back at chelsea after four months Getting um, yeah, man and match like, most games in reserves, scoring goals. I was called into the first team. And you've got to remember that then, back then. And it's funny how you said 20 years ago that would come out. Just going right back to 1982, 83. My God. It was like um, you only had 12 players. When I say 12 players, 11 players and one sub. One sub. Today's game you got five subs and using three. So you can imagine, that one sub, it was basically your manager had to bring on that sub when he see fit. Um, he couldn't bring him on too early because you never know if a player got injured and so forth. But um, I always remember that because it was a case of Crystal Palace um, and I was so excited to be, uh, be um, called a substitute for that game. And um, it was exciting for me, travelling on the coach with the players to the ground, Sellers Park. And yes, I was nervous, well, no doubt, but I called my friends, my cousin, to come there to give me the support, and all the more support I wanted. And yeah, getting there, getting into the changing room, and my teammates giving me the support and telling me when you get on, all the very best, and what I expected. Um, I didn't expect anything more. I was just. Excited for the game and ready for the game to start. That like if I'm involved, what I could do. Um, breaking in the first team is you got to understand for any young player that's coming as a professional. That's that's the job of getting into the first team and establishing yourself in that
4: But, but on that occasion, you got yourself into the first team. Of course, Chelsea was a very different club then, and uh, Chelsea to a large extent. I think history is shown them, was, was infiltrated by, by the National Front. And, and you were the first black man to wear the Chelsea shirt. Um, did you know that at the time?
6: You know what? I didn't know that history at all. And, and everybody asked me that. It's not the first time I've been asked that, but I honestly did not know the history. Even watching football at the time and Chelsea, didn't know. I thought it was just normal fans that supported your club. So, yeah, just to come there like... And obviously, going back to that game, it's like, yeah, manager's telling me to get warmed up. I'm thinking, God, it was like, it made me remain in the last 10 minutes or 11 minutes. I'm thinking, what does he expect me to do in those 11 minutes? But you know what I mean? You don't care. You're, you're on. But like, the warm-up was a wake-up call, man. That warm-up just had me change from shoulders up to sank shoulders down. Um. When I heard all the racist abuse while I was walking down the line, I thought, God, man, is that Crystal Palace trying to put you off? That's a bad one. But, you know what I mean? Taking that in, taking that in until you can't take no more and you realise and you turn, well, and I say I turn and realise and saw it It was my own fans. That was jawbroken. It was like my jaw just dropped. Um, Morning shot. Because I thought, hold on, are you not watching the shirt I'm, I've got on? It is a Chelsea shirt. And you just think, wow. I, I, I didn't understand. I thought, come on, man. This can't be just because of the colour of my skin. No way.
4: You 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 said in in your book that you went home and it, it brought you to tears.
6: It did, yeah, because I, I didn't understand that. I, I didn't expect it. I was so shocked. I was numb, I have, to be, I have to tell you, I was so numb. I didn't even know how I got home. I don't know if I got a lift or got a train or whatever. I was in really slow at the time. But yeah, I was numb. I really was numb, because I said, wow, so what's gonna happen now? Um, is this what I'm going to be, you know what I mean, to accept? Is this what's gonna happen every time I come home? I really did not know what was going on, what would happen. And um, maybe I expected a, a bit more support coming from the club. And it was a case, nobody said nothing about it. Nobody said nothing. The only person that said nothing was, was John Neal. And he said to me straight, sorry, he said to me, he so said, boy, I can't understand why you're feeling, but it's not all of that majority. It's just an ignorant, un- un- don't understand. But the only way you can beat those is by showing them what you can do. And he was right. And that was what it was, I had to show them what I could do, um, and I think I kind of got that strength really from my mum, because she had that kind of similar um, treatment coming over from the Windrush from the Caribbean to England, um, you know what I mean, for a better life, to be a nurse, and to, you know what I mean, obviously look after her kids. But what she had to go through for, to try and better herself, oh, man... I heard the stories when she told me, and it was like, I don't know if I could have taken that one because I'm kind of stubborn and I'm a quick tempered guy. But because of that, I kind of held it down. I held it down a lot of times and didn't keep quiet. I probably shouldn't have, I probably should have said something, but I I didn't want to be classed as a troublemaker and that's the reason why I didn't say nothing at the time Um them early years
4: now, now I said at the beginning that you changed the, the history of this club uh, and one of the ways you did that was through your performances uh, I think one of the things you also say in the book is there is this feeling that as a black man you had to be better than a white man doing the same thing mm. uh, and you frankly were you, know, you, you had been, some performances that were almost superhuman on occasion I can think of the, the Sheffield Wednesday is obviously the one that, that people know about um, but do you think that, um, of course, there, there, there are people there who, who, who you won round, and that is how you change things. How does that, that aspect of things feel to you?
6: That kind of helped me, because um, meeting those same fans, similar, well, when I say same fans, every day, because I was really kind of scared of coming down to the ground on match days. And coming at the time with those who know how the ground was, the main gate. I was meeting fans outside of that gate and, and telling me, Candice, man, we love you. We're not all like that, believe us, you know what I mean? I was like, it was good to know. It really was good to know for me. Um, but as you said before, it was a case for me, every game now, I had to be true, so I had to play better than the rest of my teammates just to be accepted. And that's what it was for me. It was a nervous wreck to back. From the first five minutes of the game, I I knew if my touch wasn't on point, I wasn't going to have a good game. It had to be for me to know, yeah, I'm going to have a good game, so they won't have nothing to explain or complain about. That's how I did it. Whether if we won was better, even though if I scored at the time, they didn't count. On their eyes, the majority didn't count my goal as as standard, but um, that's something I had to accept. Um, as I said, I wasn't going to run away. Um, it was quite easy. I could have done that, uh, but you know what? This is a dream that was took a long time, and I had to go to a few hurdles to reach where I was reached today.
2: So Dan, I mean, knowing Paul, and he's clearly around the club as an ambassador now, and a guy who is is really doing a great job of using social media um, to kind of share his experience. I mean, back in the day, uh, you know, when he's getting the, the abuse from the terraces and his own fans can't understand or, or can't process why, you know, he's uh, he's breaking into the team, how, how was he you know, emotionally dealing with such a thing like this? I mean, it, it had to be almost impossible, right?
4: yeah and and that 's something he touches on an awful lot in in the book and uh, you know he, he his his life experiences are are incredible he 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 's a man who not only had, was racially abused by his own fans uh, he also um suffered and beat cancer twice and he also fell into drug addiction heavy drug addiction and beat it twice uh, and you know he he admits also that that his life has has been challenging in a lot of other ways and and that that part, that the abuse he suffered at chelsea is, is definitely a, a contributing factor towards that. Um, Paul is, you know, he's a great guy to be with. Um, we had a, a, a nice lunch uh, around the, the interview and we had a, a chat off, off um, Mike. And one of the things I asked him was that, uh, you know, there would have been people who were abusing him back in the day. And I've, I've met some of them who still go to Chelsea. And, and the ones I, I know mainly uh, who were part of that abuse have said, I did it, I'm not proud of it now I wasn't thinking and now I understand why it was wrong then and I said that to him and he said well in that case you know, that's a journey that they've been over and, uh, and that's, that's something to be commended I also said to him what about the people that are no doubt still fans and still go to games who abused you back in the day and are in no way reformed at all and he said well I guess they're still there uh, I guess there's nothing we can do to change some of those people, and that that's one of the things we maybe can talk around here because you know some people have been through um, that mill and have, have changed and have, and have uh, you know almost been humanized, if you like. But some people are never ever going to go through that, are they?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely not. And I think the the thing that I always take away is you know especially if if we're looking at kind of Paul as the example here. Is that he still goes to Stanford Bridge, and I'm sure he still hears the occasional, you know, quip or, or phrase that you know kind of takes him back. And I would, you know, I think maybe maybe I'll pass this over to Mike or Dan here. But uh, to me, it, it's it's something that you know, as as a millennial, which I hate that you know that classification. You know, we're we're just not used to in such big numbers the the types of comments that are that are happening here. So, you know, for for people who are who are thinking about that, and, and Paul is is the example. How do we how do we take the ball and move it forward in a way, especially kind of considering his example, that would make sense?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that struck out to me in the interview you conducted with Paul Dan is his comments about how, you know, he was, he was afraid, you know, walking up to, to the, the bridge. And, you know, here we are that, you know, someone is, you know, an employee of an organization who, you know, is going to go out and hopefully, you know, be a a decisive, you know, individual and contributor to a match and and hopefully help win the game. And he's concerned about what's going to happen when he gets there. And there have to be supporters who, help reinforce the idea that it, it, everyone isn't the same, that it's not a homogenized group of filled with, with hatred and with with these disgusting kind of thoughts and tendencies, but there are people who, you know, are inclusive and supportive. And I, I just, you know, I was kind of shocked to hear him say that, but, you know, when you kind of think about the, you know, the attitudes and, and the time and the historical context you bring up, uh, you know, I guess I, I'm I'm less surprised than maybe I I should have been. So what I think about, I mean, I think one of the one of the main issues, I guess, for
5: this day and age, when it comes to these, you know, to abuse and also the implications for fans who go to match go to matches and are willing to, I guess, out themselves as being this full of hate or that ignorant. Um, one of the things I think that has changed is that people are a little bit more you know, they're a little bit more clandestine, they're a little bit more willing to, you know, hide their faces and, and do these things under the mask of whether they're saying they were drunk or caught up in the moment. There's this idea that, you know, there's a safe, there's a sort of safety in numbers. And that as these numbers have dwindled, you know, there's far fewer, uh, I guess, incidences of discriminatory abuse from the stands in English football matches. You know, the, some of these people have now decided that they're more safe online, that they're you know they can make a fake account, or they don't have to share their name, and they can they can take these abuses to a different sort of forum. But you know, a, as they've decreased since the '80s and '90s, that, that is a, that is a worry. It's a major worry. Um, it's one that I I guess I have some experience in, but also something that if you were willing to do so, you can do an easy Twitter search after match days, and you can find us from many places. Um, something that stands out to me was about you know early in the season last year, we're playing Spurs away. Mishibachua had an own goal header that, you know, in the end didn't end up ruining the match for us, but at the time it drew level, and uh, if not for our sort of late winner uh, from Mar- Marcos Alonso, then it would have been different. And even so, it's Chelsea fans were tweeting, you know, disgusting things at him, amongst which were, you know, obviously the slur that many Americans still, still have issues with over here, but also something that has become synonymous with just this idea of general racism against Africans, wherever they are, and that's that, that, that of the N-word, and it was something that, you know, it wasn't one incident, it wasn't one fan, but the idea of, you know, there being a need to curtail discriminatory abuse in the game was, you know, people thought, oh, we've, we've, we've washed that out, that's been, that's been taken care of, and there's a new front, if you will, uh, I know it's not necessarily a good word considering the history you provided to us Dan. but there's a new wave, if you will, of people who decided that that's the place they want to take their abuses. So I think that while there are efforts to, you know, I guess, curtail it, one of one of whom is uh, Kick It Out, which is this anti-racism watchdog, while they have some people out there who are willing to say, hey, you know, I heard someone giving racial abuse or anti-Semitic abuse to someone, and I, and I want to speak out about it. There have been a lot of reports, but these reports are A, a little bit disheartening, and B, rather ineffective because kick it out is a a bit impotent when it comes to taking action. They can say, yes, we've heard this many incidences of abuse and, you know, they partner with a social listening and analytics company named Brandwatch and, you know, the the, the information they're providing, I think, is essential. I think it's important that people take a step back and realize that this abuse has now become more prevalent online whereas, you know, it's no longer in the stands. But amongst the 22,000 incidences that they picked up in one month, during Euro twenty sixteen which is 700 attacks every single day or one every two minutes, um, they don't really have a way of taking action without some sort of policy or, you know, stronger uh, group working with them. So while these things exist and while we found a way to actually highlight them um, so that people can take action, the action itself uh, is is really kind of not being taken.
2: Well, I think one of the things I would chime in on really quick, and I'll pass it back, is I think social media for this kind of uh, for, for racism or for anti-Semitism or for any sort of discrimination is kind of a double-edged sword. Um, and I think, Amity, you did a really great job of explaining, you know, all the ways in, in which, you know, you can kind of out people. If they, if they choose not to shout out a match, you can kind of out them via Google or, or a Twitter search. But I, I also think back to a, a really ugly incident in, in our history uh, across the pond, which was Charlottesville last year. Uh, which was a, a white nationalist march that you know a person was killed at, and that there were, you know, a lot of you know kind of Hitler type sayings and, and you know the anti-Semitism and racism, and it was it was a black eye for for the United States. Um, a, you know, just a horrible uh, setup. And one of the things that came out of that is as social media has become you know kind of like a everyday documentary for all of our lives. You know, a lot of the white nationalists who were who were marching didn't want to have their chants recorded or didn't want their you know pictures plastered all over the New York Times. And I think you know, in lieu of you know giving someone you know the ability to you realize it on their own or take action you know to to not be a racist or and to semi anymore, uh, you know these types of outlets can actually you know kind of in a in a rougher way provide. Um, you know, I think a little bit of of ammunition and maybe a little bit of action, Amity, as you were saying, uh, to make sure that you know if if you're going to continue to to portray racism or, or to you know shout you know obscenities from the stands, that we're going to just find you um, and that you know a citizens' brigade of sorts can um, can just out you. And I think that you know there there is shame left in the world, and I think that does. You know, that kind of thing would, would potentially help, but you know I just wanted to throw that in there. No, well, and I, and I th- I, go ahead, Dan.
4: Sorry, I think in, in a way the, um, the 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 football of the seventies and the eighties, early eighties, is very similar to the social media of today because if if you wanted to voice these sorts of opinions, you could have the anonymity uh, uh, anonymity. Uh, an-, an anonymity thank you that's the word i'm looking for of going to a uh, football ground uh, in say 1974 or 1984 and there'd be no cameras uh, and you'd be around a lot of people who wouldn't say anything if you piped up and you could get away with it in the same way as now you'd do that on social media you, you, you and nobody would would find you because you'd have you know no ip address listed and you'd have no obvious uh, uh, you know you'd have no face on there. So so one has become the other. And and I suppose it's to the the credit of football that it is more difficult to do that there now because more people do object.
1: Yeah, I think the the only thing in that regard, and, and to the point, you know, we, we talked about Mishi a little bit ago, but I think it's worth kind of referencing back to, you know, he had um, you know, a, a claim, you know, that was you know, basically dropped by UEFA in regards to kind of investigating the racism. and, and he you know, went after him uh, on Twitter to talk about how, you know, it must be my imagination that I was hearing these these terrible racist chants, you know when I was playing. And you know, I, I think that lack of action and that lack of follow through is where the emboldening of people come from, to think that they can continue to to get away with and to take these actions with you know a a lack of you know negative consequence for um, you know to degrading a, a person or persons based upon uh, the color of their skin their um, religion their you know sexual orientation gender orientation whatever it might be um, you know I, I think this kind of ties into Another interview that you had the opportunity to conduct, Dan, uh, and that was with Peter Collins, uh, who's also a Chelsea supporter, who's one of the founders of the Chelsea Independent in the eighties, and you know, we kind of talk about this idea of combating back against those who are, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, leading the charge of, you know, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-racism. And they went after the this vocal but minority group of supporters with the articles that they put together and the way they spoke out about, you know, being a more inclusive and uh, tolerant group of individuals. And, you know, we're going to play it in a moment, but I'd love for you to kind of tee that up and to kind of walk us through, you know, what you know about Peter and, you know, kind of your understanding of what the what the independent meant in that time frame.
4: Yeah, the um, it's, it's worth explaining a little bit here about the history of fanzines, which um, were basically magazines made by fans. Um, it was a subculture that grew up from the punk movement in the late '70s in the UK, where people just did these things for themselves, you know. And the idea with punk, of course, was that anybody, regardless of musical talent, could grab a guitar and they could become a, a, a star, you know. And and the fan bases around punk made their own little magazines because they didn't trust what was in, as they thought of it, the mainstream media at the time. A similar thing happened around football a few years later. And uh, the Chelsea Independent was one of the first. It was very lo-fi. It was put together by people on you know, photocopiers in the office and it was written exclusively by fans for fans. And it's the forebear, if you like, of the sort of thing that we're, we're now involved in here today, uh, a, a podcast. Um, it's, it's where fan communications and, and fan media really started. And, and Peter has a great take on it. Listen to his interview here. I'm here with uh, Peter Collins, Uh, Peter's uh, a Chelsea fan, a season tick holder, and uh, in the 80s he's one of the uh, founding writers and and an editor for the Chelsea Independent, which was Chelsea's first ever independent fanzine, Um, and I think he's got an interesting story to tell. Uh, Peter, can you tell me briefly why the Chelsea Independent was was first set up?
7: I think some some people might disagree that it was the first ever fanzine, because I think we came across others from earlier, but anyway, moving on. Part of the reason we said it was the difficult times that were happening in football. Um, people who weren't there probably won't understand the dilapidated state that football stadiums were in. Uh, the, 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 the state of politics uh, with all sorts of ideas from the central government about identity. Uh, card schemes just to get into football, uh, the violence that was going on, which was much more prevalent and and of course the racism uh, and anti Semitism, which we still get to a lesser degree these days, but which was uh, a big part of the football going experience. A part of the football going experience that I, we thought, the people who set up the Chelsea Independent, was uh, something we wanted to fight against with words if not our fists um, and they put the club into disrepute put football into dispute and put the fan base into disrepute because we didn't think that the people who propagated this sort of hatred on the terraces and they were terraces at the time uh, represented the majority we didn't think the majority of people were died in the war anti-racists who were fight tooth and nail against it, but we did think most people would think it was a a bad thing, and we wanted to articulate that. Um, It was set up in about 1987, uh, a year before Chelsea went down again, so it was coming into bad times. Things weren't looking great for the club in that season before we went down, and then we went down. Um, Mike Titcher, who set up the uh, when Saturday comes which is still going the, the grandmother of all fanzines um, I, he's not involved anymore he lives in Australia uh, he put out a call for Chelsea fans because he was a Chelsea fan to set up a, an organisation as it was uh, it was an organisation as well as a fanzine and we invited membership so we had meetings and uh calls to action and leafleting and so forth uh, about issues. We he, we met in a pub in central London somewhere and decided we should put out a fanzine because fanzines were all the rage. And it was an avowedly uh, anti-racist and anti-Semitic, if that's the right way of putting it, um, uh, publication. So, that, that, that was... I've, I've just spoken earlier
4: today to, to Paul Cannaville. That was six, seven years after Paul Canneville had been roundly abused by his own fans yeah. so that, that was quite, in a lot of ways a
7: very, very bold position to take Yes, in a way um, I think possibly things had been worse back in the, the early Paul Canneville days I mean we, we, we didn't have we, we had players of colour playing for Chelsea after uh, Paul Canneville Paul Ganneville was of course uh, the, the pioneer and he got roundly due by a section of fans at Crystal Palace not everybody I wasn't there personally but it wasn't everybody and there was a famous situation with uh, Pat Nevin who was still relatively new to the club himself but everyone could see he was a good player uh, and those of us with the right views uh, could see that he was a sound sort of bloke he didn't talk about the game of because he talked about the abuse that Paul Canneville had, uh, and, uh, had, had suffered. So, after that, there were a few other black players coming into the team. Uh, people like Keith Dublin, who also got pelters from, from, from sections of, of the support, not necessarily because he was black, but because they didn't necessarily see him as a good player, uh, which Paul Cannavale evidently was a good player. Um, so, we we had been through a process of having players coming through the youth team or buying black players and they had become more established as Chelsea players so there had been there hadn't necessarily been a debate you don't we didn't have social media in those days so you didn't get an online debate about things but fans talk amongst themselves they understand what's going on there'd been players playing for England for a little while there'd been black players coming through from the 60s and then more in a rush in the 70s not, not until the 80s for Chelsea so perhaps we were a later club for doing that sort of stuff but there were players coming through and playing first team games for Chelsea black, were so it wasn't necessarily less of an issue uh, the black players playing for us uh, but the you know the issue was there and had been talked about and people had formulated views on it I'm sure in that time, um, we felt like we were doing something right. Uh, We felt like we were doing, you know, the civilized thing by standing up for for a civilized view Um, that people who threw bananas or uh, made monkey chants or said in private that if a black player scored a goal for Chelsea or England, it didn't count. That sort of thing should be opposed. That there was probably a majority of people who thought, yeah, well, that's right. And that we should, we should articulate it and take it out there. Now, you said the majority
4: um, agreed, and, and history shows, of course, that that's the case, and, and things have moved on. But, of course, there was a fairly hardy minority. You disagree with this? How did this manifest itself?
7: Well, uh, as I say, we didn't have social media in those days, so we didn't, thankfully, get all of all of that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm sure we'd have got a much more concerted and obvious reaction. We did have a few letters from people uh, complaining about. The sort of stance we had people didn't refuse to buy it on the grounds of our anti-racist stance because I think they saw it was a decent product and it had some funny articles in it and the the general tone was pro the fan was pro football was anti-establishment which I think a lot of fans are anyway you know they're always complaining about the board and the owner and this sort of stuff um and it was, a, it was a time in football when those issues, quite apart from racism, were also relevant. So we didn't really... I never saw any overt hostility. Only people coming up and maybe sort of skulking around our... Um, our well, you know, the place we sold it by the church in Fulham Road. Um, I think... Maybe people didn't take it that seriously and didn't uh, see us as a threat to their way of thinking. Um, Maybe until a few years later, when uh, when it when when I think the uh, the numbers we sold got bigger and bigger, and uh, I think the people who would take against it were seeing it maybe as some sort of threat. I mean, you, 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 you'd moved on by this stage,
4: yes, but, uh, but the, uh, the issue of, of Ross Razor, um, who went on to edit the fanzine and, and took a very, very public stance against racism and, and got physically uh, attacked before this, did, did, that, uh, did that, that must have made you stop and think, and, and, and how, do you, how do you feel about that, that whole situation?
7: Well, um, as I've told you earlier, before we started recording, I didn't really know Ross that well. Um, He he was in some ways more of a physical target because he was a very tall bloke. Some people listening to this might remember him. Um, He he was targeted very badly and uh, I think he suffered some some very grave injuries in in an attack.
1: So we're going to pause real quick here and Dan, you know, Peter is kind of walking us through the injuries sustained to Ross, but as you were kind of talking about before we recorded, you don't feel like necessarily that capture the, the full extent of the personal injury that he suffered in kind of standing up to those individuals. And uh, would you want to add some more context to that now?
4: Yeah, Peter was talking there about the injuries suffered by by Ross Fraser. And I'll just read here from a book uh, called Into a World of Hate, A Journey Among the Extreme Right, written by a guy called Nick Ryan. Uh, It's it's worth just, um, just explaining this. He says, another victim of Combat 18's violence was Ross Fraser, a former editor of Chelsea Independent Soccer Fanzine. Following remarks he made that racism had no place in football, Fraser was left needing seven stitches to his face, and with his sight permanently damaged, after he was struck with a broken bottle during a Combat 18-led attack in a London pub, the Fimbra Arms. Three others required hospital treatment, one with a slashed jugular vein. The attack was led by Will Browning and Mark Atkinson, screaming "Zig Heil from atop the pool table. Two months after the Fimbra incident, Fraser narrowly missed further injury after Browning tried to stab him in the face following a Chelsea game in Prague, and Combat 18 later referred to that as a failed assassination attempt.
1: So dan from from your understanding before we get back to the remaining bits of Paul uh, of sorry Peter's interview here what was the, the level of repercussion for these uh, individuals who were you know making these you know f- failed assassination attempts and who were trying to snuff out and and silence those you know working within the independent and trying to combat these you know um, white nationalists or these, you know, know, anti-Semitic people, you know, racist individuals?
4: Well, to be be honest, uh, there there was a feeling of fear around the club then. Uh, I speak to people even now in the last year or so who said that they don't want to put their head above the parapet on matters of uh, racist abuse and anti-Semitism because they fear uh, a repeat of what happened to Ross Fraser. Um, and as a result of that, in, in situations where you're talking about gang violence, basically, um, far right, almost terrorism, if you like, um, where people fear speaking up against those who are behind these things. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a frightening situation that this this happened 30 years ago now. And, and even now, people are, are frightened to talk about it.
1: And so, you know, if are you aware, before again, we'll go jump right right back into Peter's interview after this, but are you aware of any incidents that have occurred, you know in the past five, 10, 10 years here that have been a result of some of these fringe elements who are trying to make an imprint? or is it something that it, it's maybe so lost in the sea of, of other things kind of going on? that while it may have happened, it's just not um, being done in the same you know, broad or kind of uh, bocious way that maybe it occurred uh, back in the, the 80s?
4: Well, it's difficult to know because the, the version of football that people see on their televisions is still very different to the version of football that happens in reality. There is still a certain amount of um, physical behaviour around it. You know, there, there have been a small number of, of big fights in the last few years, between firms at, at Chelsea games. There's also what might be termed sort of low-level disorder, um, which, you know, goes. it's not just a Chelsea thing, it happens at every club. Um, but there are undoubtedly um, events where abuse is hurled. There's something I've seen a lot of, racist abuse, I'm afraid, um, by a, a small minority. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there are also... Instances of physical abuse as well, you know, and it's, I mean, football, as as Peter says in the next part of his interview, it reflects society and society reflects football to a large extent. And, And one almost can't exist without the other. So... You, it's difficult to know what conclusions you can draw from that. that, that Peter talks quite well
7: about that. In an attack. Um, we never suffered anything like that. We had, we had some implications, you know, people coming up to the stall and telling us, you know, we, we shouldn't be doing this, blah, blah blah but being a bit more sinister than physically threatening. Um, yes, I think there but for the grace of God go I, because uh, there was always that potential. I suppose, within it. Um, when, when you believe in something you're saying, I suppose you, you don't really think about the dangers t- too much. We, and, and we tended to avoid them because we... Uh, uh, we were always surrounded by people uh, who were of a like mind. And actually, I think the the majority were there. One, one of the earliest... Things I remember is that we, we got letters in saying, Thank God someone's doing this, you know, and uh, uh, I agree with your stance entirely. And uh, it, it was very gratifying to find things like that going on. Um, I don't know if we were just lucky early on, but yes, yeah, so there was this later thing with, with Ross. And uh, yeah, it, it, it all balled up quite badly for him, and I don't think he. Is anywhere near following Chelsea anymore, you know? And it's um, <sighs> if we were to set up the Chelsea event today as an online thing, probably it would be. I'm sure there'd be sort of uh, Twitter and Facebook things going on against us and uh, we'd, we'd find it very difficult mm-hmm. um, Chelsea has changed a lot as a club, uh, it's almost
4: in a lot of ways unrecognisable now I, 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 there was a poll not so many years ago where Didier Drogba was voted as the club's greatest ever player um, and we've gone through that whole journey from uh, Paul Cannival being horribly abused to utterly embracing someone of colour in that way um, but those attitudes do remain, don't they? Um, how do how do we go about changing those attitudes? And you know, how is is the journey we've already come a positive sign that we can make it almost the full way?
7: I hate I hate to be in misery, but I don't think we're ever going to go the full way. I think that that potential is there in humanity. I mean, I, I think I think these things do follow. They're not just football things, they follow national trends. I mean, uh, in the 70s, the National Front got a sort of electoral footing, um, not necessarily in winning seats in Parliament, which it didn't, or, or winning local seats, which I don't think it did, although the British movement, 10, 15 years later, did. Um, and then UKIP came along, of course. Um it does follow national trends it's no surprise that the national front was strong in the 70s racism at Chelsea was strong in the 70s that you see a resurgence of racism anti-semitism at Chelsea you see a resurgence of it nationally these things these things go hand in hand they're not it's, it's not football following its own its own trend so I think it, everything has to be football can can take its own course of course Uh, you know uh, I know you've been involved with uh, the anti-Semitism thing to try and because you've seen an upsurge of it recently at Chelsea Um, but it has to it has to be something you deal with in schools it has to be something you deal with in workplaces Uh, you can only campaign that's really all you can do Um, people are going to these used to some degree and it's you can tip some people one way and you can stop them tipping all the way the other way but they will still be there I think um, I, I, my attitude is that they've probably been swept under the carpet a little bit in recent years and now we've had the rise of UKIP which is you know they're, they're, some of their followers would say we're not a racist party but it does open the gates to Uh, xenophobia and uh, you know the EU referendum I think has shown what a divided country we are in terms of our relations to the outside world and those things people who voted leave aren't necessarily racist, and there will be racists who voted to stay but there's a thin line out, out of which these horrible, extreme views can, can, can pour if, if the atmosphere in general is is, is right for it to happen. And I think we're seeing that now, and it's no surprise to me that with, with those sort of attitudes prevalent in society, that they're, they're, they're perhaps being articulated at football as well, more than they were. But they were probably always bubbling under. I don't think the anti-Semitic chants ever went totally away at Stamford Bridge. I mean, I think the overt... Anti-black racism has probably disappeared to a certain degree, but we might still be there. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Yes, okay. sir, thank you.
1: So, I'd like to open it up now for any questions in regards to the interview that Dan conducted with Peter. I think Nick, that you had a, a few that you know you were thinking of after you listened to. You know, it's a very um, you know engaging conversation and an informative conversation. And for those of us who didn't grow up around the grounds and and who've only loved Chelsea, maybe from, from afar or or across an ocean or two.
2: Absolutely. So I think uh, Dan, for me, one of the major, you know, I, I I had a huge smile on my face when, uh, when Peter said this, but he said, when you believe in something you're saying, I suppose you don't think about the dangers all that much. And so we were talking earlier about, you know, in terms of, if, you know, physical abuse, you know, not only, uh, you know, things that were were happening in the terraces, but, you know, the physical abuses uh, that were, you know, still kind of making people fearful to speak up, you know, this, you could kind of hear in his voice that that was, uh, you know, something that he believed in. And he was, he was wanting to to put that out there, I think, as a, as a a calling card for those who who might not have have spoken up to this point, maybe.
4: Yeah, I think that was very much a driving factor between, behind the formation of, of Chelsea Independent, as, as Pierre said. Um, and I think one of the points he makes there is, is quite valid, that, that while he and a few others were a small bunch who were willing to stand up and be counted on these matters, and also while those who were racist and, and, and wanted to, to put those views out there were also probably a small bunch, as in most cases, the vast majority of people just wanted to keep their head down um and i suppose the the job that that was then as it is now is if you feel strongly about these things is convincing that vast majority that your side is the right side and that really we're on the all side all, all on the right side and the and the minority is those who those who feel differently uh and and i think that's that that was very much the job of the chelsea independent back then
2: Absolutely so in, and I'm thinking back to kind of the punk phase that you referenced earlier and this kind of rebelling against the you know, the kind of corporate machine and, and all of these things that seem to be happening. The fanzine took a stance at the time that was not unpopular because he, he noted that the majority felt the way that the, the fanzine was writing was was good. But it kind of took it on in a different way. And so in terms of, you know, it, you being a journalist and, and talking about some some pretty heavy issues as well, how do you feel like that impacted, you know, I mean, even yourself as as a young fan uh, in the 80s?
4: Well, well at the time, uh, a lot of youth culture was uh, subject to potential infiltration by the far right. You know, punk and... Uh, and the, uh, the music that came out of the new wave and things like Two Tone and Scar. You know, one of the greatest ironies was that, that some of the people who were on the far right um, were, were quite into some of this, the, the Scar music, which of course originated in Jamaica. Um, and I know, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And, uh, you know, there are bands like, uh, you know, uh, like The Selector and uh, like The Specials and closest to Chelsea Madness. Uh, got a couple of Chelsea... Uh, going fans in the band who, who found around that time that, that there were skinheads and also racists, members of the NF, National Front, who started to come to their gigs. And they felt that the biggest thing they could do was just let these people that, hang on, you're at the wrong gig, lads. You know, you are not our people. We do not believe the same as you. And and those three bands I mentioned were were, were very good at doing that. And the Chelsea Independent was was tried very hard and this isn't that they're up and running in the later 80s and from 88 onwards and and I think succeeded in doing that they did eventually win the center ground and and that was the important thing that that happened
2: so and, and I just want to kind of wrap up as as we're looking back at kind of this period um, Peter said that he didn't think the majority of fans were were taking the extreme stances what did the majority of fans look like I mean we over here you know this is pre you know, I was born in 87. So this is kind of like pre my time. But um, what what did the majority of fans look like? We we know about the hooliganism and we know kind of the subset of that were some of these incidents. But if the majority were kind of good match going fans, you know, how did that, you know, how did that makeup look in the stadium, I guess?
4: Well, f- football back in the day, uh, and, and we're not talking very long ago, was always very, very white, uh, was generally quite working class. And it's only really in the last, I suppose, really 20 years, maybe maybe a little bit more than that, that, that things have started to change and that the game has on the terraces or in the stands become more inclusive. Um, at the time, I suppose it was a place where a lot of people, you know, like my father back in the early 80s, felt that it wasn't a safe place to be. Uh, and, you know, going forward from things like Italia 90, which brought more women into the game, which in turn calmed down some of the testosterone that maybe the, uh, the toxic masculinity, we'd call it these days, that was in the stand, that uh, got rid of some of that. Um, but it was, you know, a, a very, very white place. And Chelsea, to a large extent, has got still a long, long way to go on that. Um, it's still one of the, the whiter clubs in London. Uh, and our fan base is, is is one of the older fan bases, match going fans wise, in London. But 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 the game has changed an awful lot, and, for, and and in positive directions.
1: You know, Dan, when you think about the you know the evolution here and what you've you know seen, you know, are there what what are the biggest visual cues that you take away that? You know, there there has been a fair amount of, of positive change. Again, it's not perfect, and, and we're not we're not doing this a series of, of content because things are perfect. There's still room for for growth. But what are some of the visual cues or telling things that you know that you know change has occurred from when you started supporting Chelsea to now?
4: I think the most obvious one um, is one thing I mentioned to Paul Canneville in the interview, and and that is that we've come from a place in in 81 where as he said fans some fans would not even count his goals because they didn't think they were legitimate because they came from a black man to a place where post 2012 when we won the Champions League Didier Drogba uh, an African man uh, was voted the club's greatest ever player um, and that shows how far we've come not everyone will be on with, board, board with that but it just shows the majority movement and that 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 has to be a, a real positive message.
1: You know, as we kind of think about that as well, you know, Amadi, and, you know, you, you take a very specific look and, uh, you know, probably uh, produce most of the gifts people use uh, across the world when looking <laughs> at uh, Chelsea, um, how, you know, you have probably a more intimate relationship with the the social aspect of our, our fan community than maybe anyone that I would know and I I wonder how you've maybe seen that change potentially over the the past few seasons as you've kind of increased the the way that you've engaged because Dan speaks to it obviously to what he sees at the grounds in the stadium traveling across the world into multiple different countries to watch the game and you know you in turn are watching the fan base of Chelsea grow, you know, digitally and and how has that mapping kind of changed and what you've seen over the past couple of seasons?
5: Well, I think it's been interesting, honestly. Um, yes, I think I, I have seen a difference. I think there are more younger fans who are out, you know, openly, I guess speaking their minds during and after matches, and also people who have access to the club tend to I don't know if the word would be to write silly things to the club, but also people tend to feel like there's, you know, there's so many millions of us fans. How can they possibly single me out? What I'll say, what I'm saying is just funny. There's the idea that, you know, the idea that people will see your tweets and whether you are a troll or an actual fan who's looking to get, gain a perspective or get a question answered, you're looking really to interact with the Chelsea community. And that I think has grown a lot in the past couple of years, and I think for, the, well, for a lot of it has been for the most positive reasons. Um, a lot of fans simply write, you know, I follow all Chelsea fans. I, I mean, anybody who's in my comment threads for uh, gifts, which get shared quite extensively, and also from, from not just people in England or America, but around the world, have their own little conversations about what they thought about this game or this one instance or this foul, and very rarely do those sorts of conversations turn ugly. I personally very rarely deal with incidences of abuse targeted at me unless it's something when I'm pointing out instances of abuse. You can see, uh, see the irony in that. Um, and that, I think, is really the most worrying. That, you know, in the times when I'm not posting GIFs or when I'm not saying, oh, what do fans think about X player or Y or, you know, what about this new manager? You know, I am trying to take the time to highlight these incidences of abuse because I feel like they need to be pointed out. If You know, if everybody wants to turn a blind eye to them, they will not get it looked at. People will not get, you know, they'll not consider what this might mean for our greater fan base. And, you know, quiet is kept, there are millions of Chelsea fans around the world. In Asia, in Africa, in South America, in America, in England, in Europe, and the rest of the countries. I mean, everybody is interested in this one team, which means everybody has their own sort of perspective they're bringing to it. And if a lot of the fans, and I, and I, and I hesitate to say that they're all English, because I do not know exactly where all the fans who are providing abuse are from, but... Tendency has been that those those people who would argue with me, saying, "Well, this slur is really just doesn't mean what you think it means," or you need to stop pointing these things out because it's really just about the greater game and you're making incidences out of nothing. A lot of them tend to be English speaking and or hailing from America or England. So, I, while I understand that you know these things aren't isolated, they sh- they certainly are something that I've found with a bit of a pointed uh, delivery, and that is that they're coming from you know I guess what. A smaller scope of fans. And that's, as you said, Dan, these these people are in, a, are in the minority, but it only takes the majority not speaking out to embolden that sort of behavior. And I think that what I tend to do when I point out, say, for example, commentary, you know, because it's not just the fans online. I think there are certain parts of the game, certain aspects of the way, the way it's covered that makes fans seem, you know, or not seem to, but makes fans feel more comfortable saying these sorts of things. I mean, whether it's the description of African players as large, and pacey, and athletic, and has an engine in a tank, and run for days. All those sorts of things that, you know, players who are white, and who are Asian, and who are, you know, Latino, who might actually fit that description, don't ever get given those sorts, of, uh, those sorts of adjectives to describe them. So, I mean, it's not just an online abuse thing, it's not just social media, but it is where I've been seeing these sorts of backlashes. And, and it's not just one person, you know, who will tweet at me saying, oh, you need to give this up, I mean, those tweets will get tons of likes. The person who says, "Oh, stop playing the race card," will get tons of likes. People will chime in. However, in these same comment threads, as I said, there's a majority of people who actually say, um, "No, that's not on. You got to get that out of here. Kick it out of the game." You know, people agreeing, saying, "Oh, I thought I was the only one." You know, and and the idea here is kind of echoing Dan again is that there are a lot of people who recognize what what's being said isn't right, and, and what we need to do um, on the whole to, to to kind of better ourselves and speak out about it, but it really is necessary for there to be a sort of I don't know an idea that maybe this isn't a safe thing to be doing because the fact that Twitter for example and other forms of social media are so anonymous there is the idea that well I won't get in trouble for this and I can say what I want and maybe I'll delete it later you know these sort I of, know I've even seen someone bragging about having burner accounts because they can say the things that they really want to say on it I mean that Twitter doesn't necessarily have a great way of dealing with that in fact they've even come out and said on their own that they don't have a, a method really of properly handling abuse. In fact, this is a direct quote from C, uh Twitter CEO in 2015, quote, we suck at dealing with abuse and trolls on the platform and we've sucked at it for years. It's no secret and the rest of the world talks about it every day. So that's just one platform and there are millions if not billions of people who use you know these things and send billions of tweets. It's just, I think there's a lot to do, but on our end, I think that clubs, VFA. And any other organizations who are interested in keeping discriminatory abuse online out of English football, I think they need to coordinate and work together to do these things. And I don't think it's an impossibility.
1: I think you, you you know, we, we kind of go back to this, this concept that there, there is intolerance, there is you know, yeah, racial abuse, uh, you know, uh, religious intolerance that, that occurs. And we, we need to only look at, you know, the, the, way that, you know, you or others or players or the club gets tweeted at any time that they bring up things about exclusivity. um, You know, I I think back to, you know, just the the fact that rainbow laces on on shoes as a segment of touching on, you know, um, you know, gender equality and then also, uh, you know, tolerance for, uh, you know, sexual orientation uh, can... (laughs) cause a, a firestorm of, of tweets of uh, throwing up emojis and um, other other items that are you know v- rather profane to be you know, thrown at the club. but I, I think it goes back to this idea that ultimately the biggest element of change that can occur is those who know what is right, who know what is wrong and are able to discern that to find comfort in the voice that they have inside and to make that voice be something that is heard, uh, not just within the echo chamber of their own mind, but within, um, you know, to find it in their voice box and to share it with someone else and to be able to say that's wrong, to disagree with those who are spewing intolerance and to really help stamp it out of not not just the game, not just Chelsea, but you know, in, in the global kind of specter of it. And obviously again, we've we focused primarily around, you know, Chelsea. And again, it's not to paint the, the club in a negative light. It's not to paint our supporters in a negative light, but it's to talk about and highlight the opportunity for us to be as good as I think we all hope Chelsea to be from a group of supporters and as a club that we want to see that Continual growth and and progress.
5: Yeah, and I also just wanted to say one other thing. I think it's important that what you're you know what you're saying gets some sort of play. I think you know what the club could do on its own. This is just an idea, but just to echo your thoughts, there's there needs to be an amplification of these voices. Of voices of, of just regular fans who you know whether you're match day going or not. You you know if you support the club and you're against these things, I would love it if the club somehow you know got people out just saying, you know, I'm, I'm for this or that or, you know, I do support inclusivity. I do want people to be more tolerant. I do want to see more fans of other, of different colors and different sexual orientations. I want them feeling welcome to support Chelsea whether they're at the, at Stamford Bridge or not. So yes, I think that's important. And I really do believe that that would empower so many people to feel welcome. Uh, whether they're, you know, as I keep saying on over and over, whether you're entering the stadium or not, you should feel welcome to support the club to wear your team colors with pride, like to actually feel like there is a place for you in the stands if you were ever to go. And that comes from, you know, the club doing the, the sorts of trips um, that we, we, we intend to speak about, but also, you know, just let lifting up those voices of regular fans who, who, who do look differently from myself and who do think differently, who might pray differently. These sorts of things are important. I think it makes us better as a whole to know that there are different people from around the world supporting us. I think it's awesome, frankly.
2: And it doesn't, I mean, we're doing this podcast and I think, you know, we, we kind of had a massive tee up at the beginning as to why we're doing it, but um, we, we were talking uh, last week before recording this and we put a lot of thought into it. And I think the thing is, uh, the, the, the thing that we, we kind of came back to time and time again before recording was... Like this isn't like a a, a new concept <laughs> you know like this something that you know it's it's you know in our society now is more readily accepted than it ever has been uh, before but we, we are we're at this point where I think you know we have a, a chance to make a real difference and you know I, I would just I would say this and knowing that I'm a white guy from the Midwest and in, in, the, in the United States um you know, I, I don't say this uh, lightly. Is that finding your voice at times can be a challenge, especially with friends and family, and and you know people you know online, and you know people that you like. Uh, even you know to say, you know, hey man, that's not the right thing to say, uh, or you know, hey, you know, wh- why are you doing this? Wh- what's going on? You know, can we can we think about this? Uh, it, it can be a challenge, it, in you know, I certainly have experienced it in my life, but. Um, knowing, knowing that you're doing uh, the right thing and you're making, you know, kind of even your little pod of the world, a better place, uh, or more inclusive place at that uh, is, is a pretty gratifying thing. And I, I would challenge anyone who's, you know, who's struggling with that, uh, out there to, you know, you know, think about it and, and, you know, try and determine what's going to be best in your own situation. But it's certainly something that you know i think i want to throw out there that you know a lot of us have have dealt with and i think as we were kind of coming up with the concept of the show that it was uh, readily apparent that we were all pretty passionate about this so um i will kick it back to, to dan
4: yeah and i think um that that's that's an important thing isn't it it's it's all about um finding the voice um i, I want to be clear I've, I've spoken an awful lot um in this part of the show about how these forms of racism have often come from the white working classes. And and it is common for people who are white and working class to believe that they're under attack um, because people take this position that says that they are to blame for everything. You know, I'm, I'm white. I'm from a working class background. My dad drives a cab for a living. Uh, we're a Chelsea-going family for many, many years. Um, and the point is that... Um, your your white working class background doesn't preclude you from coming forward and saying to other people, actually, we are all the same people. At the end of the day, you know, you cut us in half, we bleed, uh, and the, the the ridiculousness of of uh, of having a position uh, of uh, of superiority over the amount of uh, uh, melanin or, or whatever it that, that exists in in your in your skin is is a, an entirely alien position. Uh, and it's one that whatever your background, uh, white, working class or, or whatever, it's a very logical and a very easy one to oppose, let's be honest.
1: I think the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that as you know, the pressure is put on you know, those who I- exist with these views in, in direct conflict with, you know, I would say, normal society will get louder and will be agitated in a way uh, while we continue as you know thinking about how we play our voice forward and how we help to build a more inclusive world a more inclusive game a more inclusive club and and supporter groups and uh, that that's you know if they're getting louder we're doing the right things to make it difficult for them to hide in the shadow and to allow this form of intolerance to exist and I think we've talked a lot about some really great topics here today and heard some wonderful interviews from those involved with the history of the club. So that's going to wrap up our first part in a multi-part series focusing on anti-Semitism and racism in regards to Chelsea and also the game of football and working towards a a more tolerant and inclusive future for the sport and for supporters in our club uh, we would love to hear back from anyone who has an anecdote or story to share. You know, please tweet at us, write us an email, uh, hit us up on our Instagram DM, and you know, just share your perspective. I think what we want to look to do is continue to provide amplification, you know, as Amade said, to the voices who are attempting to share the stories of how they feel included, how they are now able to go to games and be supported. And the best thing that we could do is to put voices behind that it, You know, these views, these uh, aberrant views are not something that we support. They are not something that represents us as supporters or as people. And we want to find the right platform and opportunity to share that perspective and work on continuing to uh, educate, those who are intolerant and eradicate their views where possible. So uh, please feel free to do that with us at London Blue Pod on all social media platforms and contact at com if you'd like to share a story with us. And we look forward to seeing you in the next part.